There is no harm to dream big. We have to dream super big. We have to aspire to a smart, intelligent, maybe even superhuman future and put a vision and a roadmap for that. I'm Clay Hausman, Chief Revenue Officer of Arctana and host of Contextual Intelligence. Our guest today helps shape the data science strategy at one of the world's leading biotech companies, but he doesn't have your typical pharma resume. Instead, he came up through the world of retail, where he spent the last decade driving AI and digital projects at L'Oreal, and most recently, Levi Strauss. We're joined today by Youssef Eidelkade, the Senior Director of Data Science for Commercial, Medical, and Government Affairs at Genentech. How is his experience working in retail influencing the way he's using AI in his current role? Well, that's what we're going to find out. Youssef, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, as I mentioned in your bio there, you spent the last 13 years of your career before Genentech in retail. We tend to be very insular on this podcast. We are in the life sciences industry. We're life sciences people talking to other life sciences people. So this is quite thrilling to have somebody who's got the perspective much broader than our industry. So I want to ask you, especially coming from retail, which is often held up as one of the models for AI given its early adoption, at a high level, can you kind of just give us a sense of the progression of data science and AI and machine learning in the commercial model in retail during your time in that industry? Absolutely. For me, the, the, there are two big milestones. The um, 2000s with internet, there is for me a before and after internet. And also there is a before and after iPhone with Steve Jobs, 2007, 2008. Just because the evolution of AI ML, it's nothing but evolution in, in people's habits, the way we shop, the way we interact with internet and also with ourselves and each other. So the example I have for this evolution in retail is basically going from descriptive analysis to a sort of predictive and prescriptive analysis. An example that comes to my mind is Target. You're probably familiar with the story of them predicting or sending marketing campaigns to um, a family. And the, the father came to Target saying, why are we sending this baby product to my daughter? She's, <laughs> she's in high school. So turned out that the daughter was pregnant. That was a little bit, I would say, the, the beginning of that experience in retail, having a static way of analyzing things. All the retailers having millions of, of receipts and sitting on that data on premise warehouses and having to analyze them to create segments and, and ways of targeting clients based on what they're buying, like pure transactional way of doing analytics. And with the internet, and this is the after, basically we had a um, pretty good sense of what is the potential of internet when it comes to e-com. So people still go into stores, but we saw that a lot of businesses started selling things online and that created a new need, right? Like with that evolution in technology created the need of developing new ways of analyzing people, not making it pure transactional analysis, but making it linked to behavior. And then we had people moving from internet to mobile. Everybody shops through different channels like social media and other marketplaces that are at the, the tip of, of our fingers. So basically, we, we saw much more personalized way of recommending and selling. And also uh, the need of customers has shifted into, I need something now 
and I need something that fits perfectly my need. There is no trade-off. There is no negotiation. So this is how I, I, I kind of see the evolution of uh, AI ML in the retail space, like going from what I call static point of view to something very dynamic and personalized to satisfy the, the consumer. I have to say that that Target story, when it first came out, I found fascinating when it was first published. But <laughs> many years later, now that I am the father of a 15-year-old daughter, I find it terrifying. So I have a very different perspective on that story as things have changed. So I'm curious then, it's mid-2021, Genentech comes calling to you about an opportunity, and you decide that you want to make a shift from an industry like retail that's been deep into AI and machine learning for you know a decade or more. And in the ways that we think about it, you know, true data scientists would say it goes, it goes back much further than that. But the way that we've talked about it as of late and move to an industry that's considered more of a late adopter for many good reasons, because there's a lot more at stake and there's a lot more that you're dealing with there. And you decide, you know what, this is a move I want to make. What was your thought process? What made you decide to make that shift and join Genentech? The role was just tailored for me. Like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I will be hearing science all day long. But at the same time, I will be on the operation side and mix between my love for research, but also my love and, and, and passion for operations. That's one. Two was I quickly saw the, the opportunity and, and the gaps, right? I had the impression that there is a lot to build and there is a huge opportunity to be part of, I would say, not a project or a program. It's for me a revolution in the space of healthcare because I have done also my due diligence and I realized that healthcare is not a space where digital transformation has gone far beyond compared to retail. I guess there is a number from McKinsey that says like around 7% of healthcare industrials have gone digital versus 15 or 20% in retail. So the bottom line is you put me in a field where everything is flat and the grass is already trimmed and, and, and beautiful. That's not for me. You put me in a space where, you know, it's pretty uh, hard or, or, or difficult to navigate, but there is an opportunity to apply machine learning and AI in order to solve complex problems. This is where, where definitely I will be at the max of my capacity. And I'm happy to contribute and build a strong organization that will support the company vision. So I would imagine there have been things on both sides of the ledger. There have been some things that are as you expected them to be, kind of reinforced what you had hoped for when you made the move. And there are probably a couple of things that, that surprised you. What are some examples on both sides? There are gaps, of course, that we're trying to bridge. But also, I was really surprised in a good way, the amount of this workforce and resources, I think we can achieve a lot. And also, like... I'm super surprised how knowledgeable people are, like, especially on the CMG side. Yes, we are on the operation side, but I mean, people, they really understand the context and it's just amazing how they can translate like basically science into something completely tangible and operationalized and make sure that our patients are being served properly and customers in general. It doesn't go without, you know, some downsides where, you know, when you have this kind of rock stars everywhere, it does create some silos. Like, you know, we have like small groups, you know, like everybody is launching initiatives on their sides. And I think the, the ideal state is to break those silos. So we need to remind everybody and remind ourselves that we work towards the same goal and, and purpose. 
And that's normal because, you know, it does confirm to me that there is a lot to do in terms of bringing also some innovation to the company and using machine learning and, and AI can be one of the biggest components to bridge the gap between the different groups and a unified pipeline of initiatives in this space. So, yeah. How about on the surprise side, and maybe not about Genentech, but about the industry, was there anything that as you made this shift out of retail where you had been for a while into healthcare and life sciences that maybe you didn't expect and you found either, you know, it could be a, a very pleasant surprise that kind of counters the perception of, and I think you just mentioned it with, you know, the level of talent that exists in this discipline for an industry that's considered a little bit behind the curve in adoption. But is there anything that surprised you as you've been part of the industry that you didn't expect coming in? Absolutely. I, I did not expect, for example, having a multi-cloud. <laughs> that was a good surprise because I think, <laughs> yes, retail is you know advanced, but when I joined Levi's in 2018, the only organization who had cloud instances were econ people. The rest of the organization, for example, supply chain operations, like everybody was running on-prem still. Genentech, I came because it's the first biotech company in the world, and, and I did not expect having that multi-choice, I would say, if we trust the numbers in healthcare, like everybody, of course, is saying that healthcare is not as much advanced. But from the re resources-wise, I, th I think what I like also in healthcare, we, we do give ourselves the means and the, the tools to advance the purpose. So that was a good surprise for me because most of the work has been done already, like from tech stack standpoint and resources. It's the work or the hardest to come is more shifting the, the mindset of people from legacy to, you know, working with data based approaches and tools. So you cannot, for example, for engagement, go and, and pause a tool or technology to a rep who, who used to plan their businesses the old way. So there is a little bit of education to do and to the fact that machines are not replacing humans, but they are augmenting them. So good surprise for me. We have a lot of assets at Genentech, and I'm, I'm very proud that the road ahead is still very long, but I think we're on the, on the right path. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, interesting. You just mentioned this kind of notion of the humanization or the, or the partnership between humans and AI. And there's a lot of discussion about that in our industry. It's interesting because that same mental block doesn't seem to exist in a lot of consumer applications. So if, if Netflix recommends a, a different film to you or a different TV program based on what you've watched before, we don't have an issue with that quite often. And, and I know the statistics are high on how many of the, of the views come from those personalized recommendations, how effective they are. Or when Google Maps gives you a different route, that doesn't offend us and our ego and our driving ability. But in our industry, there is more distrust at the outset that needs to be overcome, whether that's between a sales professional and an application or a, an AI or, or a piece of machine learning that's supporting them in decision-making. How do you think we overcome that? Why does that exist here more frequently? And maybe how are we more effective in, in normalizing this in, in an industry like ours? It has to do, I think, with the level of trust we build between the machine and the end user. With Alexa, for example, like people never imagined they will need this kind of assistance at home to kind of, you know, ask for playing music or ordering food or doing such things. And even with that, we had all these controversies with Alexa is listening to me and where is my data going? And But still people, because they get what they need as, as users, as customers, they start building this satisfaction, this trust. 
And also the fact that all these providers on the market in the internet industry in general pay attention to the, the privacy more and more, it kind of reassures people, okay, it's fine if you have a pod of Google Assistant at home and you ask that assistant to do some tasks for you. You can turn on and off things. You can activate, deactivate things. You are in charge, right? Similarly, I think in the healthcare industry, there are people out there who've been in the business since years and they always, they plan their business, they engage like with, with healthcare professionals in a certain way. And if someone comes and, and all of a sudden gives them like a, an engine like that engages on their behalf or that, that gives them like this kind of recommendations, first, they need to know where these recommendations are coming from. Second, they need to know, so what is the level of confidence they have to put in that in, in these kind of recommendations? And I think the fact that we trust Google Maps to bring us to the right right place or right destination, it's because it has been experienced. It has been proven right over time. And I don't think they got it right the first time. It's the iterative approach that, that made Google Maps what it is today. And still, we can still hear people comparing Google Maps to Apple Maps and having mm -hmm. this kind of, you know, comparisons say, hey, like, this is completely off, like humans criticizing the machine and and so on and so forth. I think overall, building that trust and giving control to users, the, the perception of AI as being a tool to, to augment and support humans versus a tool to substitute to, to what humans can deliver. I, I guess it has to do also with this notion of feedback loop. As far as I can tell the machine what to do and override what the machine is doing, we're friends, right? So it's exactly that. But if, if I, I have zero control and if I have the impression that I'm dealing with a black box, this is where we lose trust in AI and machine learning because AI and machine learning is not the end goal. The end goal is the value it generates for me. What is it in machine learning and AI for me as a user, as a human, and how does that assist me to make my life easier? And it's not impossible. I have seen it at Levi's. I have seen it at L'Oreal. People always start by resisting. But then once you, you build that, that trust and you give them more control to be part of training the model, if you have people who are serving as subject matter experts, they generally trust the machine. I think it's very well said, honestly, and the way you described it, it's not about AI and machine learning as the endpoint. It's about the value that AI and machine learning generate. Is is very accurate. So at Genentech, you are leading and part of a major digital transformation effort, like a lot of large life science companies right now, as they make this shift towards being more digitally oriented and, and as it accelerates, given the way it's changed behaviors coming out of COVID. That requires you as a data science lead to probably have to make trade-offs or to balance out decisions and investments that will lead to innovation, maybe more long-term versus more practical or pragmatic decisions about near-term and, and, and hitting marks that you need to hit in order to maintain momentum. What is your decision-making process yourself? How do you balance that? How do you make those trade-offs? That's an excellent question. And we are in the middle of, of that as we have a lot of use cases. And I talked about my me being positively surprised of number of talents and initiatives in the company. So I have a guiding principle because I, I learned the hard way, to be honest. There is no harm to dream big. We have to dream super big. We have to aspire to a 
smart, intelligent, maybe even superhuman future and put a vision and a roadmap for that. We have to paint that picture. However, there is also no harm to start small because basically in a company that is not a company that sells software, we, we don't sell AI solutions as a biotech company. This is not the core of our, our business. So when it comes to prioritization of what goes to this AI ML pipeline project or initiatives, I think the first thing to do is to start small and show success in a very niche area. I always say that we have to show the tip of the iceberg to the execs and then we can show them the rest. To gain momentum, you have to start somewhere. Mistake we have done, I think when I was at L'Oreal for years, it's we were having this empiric or sequential approach where let's work with IT and create databases for all our data, for all areas of research, right? Getting our master data correct. And we were like so obsessed. And as a result, we haven't started transforming until very, very late. We did it and we succeeded. And today for me, L'Oreal is number one in beauty tech and all these kind of nice things, right? But to me, the first thing to do is just start. And the prioritization approach I have is what are the key issues that are recurrent in the company, the things that keep occurring again and again, and for which we don't have solution, like using AI, ML, and, and data-based approaches, and things that are intense, things that are cost-sensitive, things who are losing money, things who are losing competitive advantage. So that's, for me, a mapping we should be doing as leaders, like to really find that sweet spot. Just start somewhere, and we don't have to wait until we get all our data in you know nice shape and form. And I really have this lean startup approach where start, experiment, fail fast, so I can iterate. Otherwise, you never get started. I always have big plans for, for my team, for the organization when it comes to IML. I have also an approach that I learned called open innovation, which is basically don't wait necessarily until you scale up your internal capability. You can definitely go and, and seek help and expertise from the outside world. And sometimes innovation comes from outside, not necessarily from inside. And you can trust me on that one because by experience, sometimes for the same idea, if you pitch the idea internally, you may have some resistance. If you ask your friend to give the company a call and you pitch the idea from outside, your idea might get executed. I'm sorry, let me probe on that a little bit, Youssef, about in-house teams versus outside partners. When Octana essentially created the space of commercial and medical intelligence and life sciences 10 years ago, even seven years ago, most of our customers did not have robust data and analytics teams internally. We were playing that role quite often for them on the outside, but now that's changed quite a bit. And even as you just described, the level of talent that you have internally on your team as you think about projects and expertise, how do you decide where to focus in-house resources and what to rely on outside partners for? Is there a consistency or does it kind of vary project to project, campaign to campaign? There is no good or bad answer to this question, but my experience shows that we need both. I like the example of Actana because when I joined, basically my team started actually building some in-house capabilities and algorithms for next best action, for example, engagement. The problem is 
when we had to start scaling things, like for our partners in consumer engagement, we weren't staffed and we did not have the, the expertise, like from software engineering and all these kind of talents. And to take that to the next level, it's just seems a natural choice when you want to accelerate. Sometimes it's great to go to the expert. Actana is a software company. Genentech is a biotech company. So everyone, you know, everyone has an expertise. Now, there might be instances where the, you know, hybrid model can be the best for the, the companies where basically they build a sort of hybrid model where both solutions coexist. You are still dependent on an external platform, but you are also able to co-develop things with that provider. And, and this is where I, I see a lot of opportunities for any company, not only in healthcare and biotech. And then there are like areas where the expertise is a pure internal business, right? Like you better do it internally because you have all the resources and you are ready to go and you don't have any time constraints or any cost limitation to achieve that. I would say research topics or topics with a long range vision. I always tend to do internally things where I need a very fast execution and scale. I always advocate for working with outside world. I think it's just like when I have time and I don't have like very timely, you know, sensitive deliverables or investment or ROI. So I, I, I take my time and that's fine if you have a core team who's developing and working things internally because you can then, you know, like explore things and no constraint. But if you know that, for example, in areas, if if we don't do engagement, if we don't do next best action, if we don't have a solution that is up and running, other players in the market will do it. And that's a missed opportunity for, for the company. So that's why I think external partners do provide that, that competitive advantage for sure. Plus the expertise, of course, like I guess you have more data, data scientists that I have and you have more software engineers that we have internally, which is completely okay because you, it's, it's your expertise and our expertise is to make the best and, and the most accurate treatments for patients. That's what we do. And you create the best technology that can help us do that. So I think that's uh, my mindset, at least my philosophy on, on this. That's great. Well, one other area I want to ask you about, you know, we're about to get started on a medical intelligence program together and providing a 360 degree experience for HCPs across all their touch points with a company like Genentech, make sure that that's a very consistent and valuable experience for them is critical. That's obviously what we're all seeking to provide right now. But at the same time, it's important to keep commercial and medical separate so as not to sort of pollute the medical council side with any commercial messaging or other influences. So how do you strike that balance? What, how are you looking at that for Genentech to make sure that the experience provided to the HCP is a full 361, but then there is enough division that's still important between those, those two parts of your business? I love this question. Yes, our approach is the following. We learn from commercial, why? Because the commercial system is very complex as well. It's, it's too big from data interactions, like the data sources are huge. There is a complexity where we kind of build the muscle in commercial. And then for medical, I think it's more of applying the technology, not the same data sources or not infusing outputs from commercial to influence medical because commercial is about promotional and, and medical is about science. Of course, both universes coexist 
when it comes to talking to the same HCPs, for example. We do believe that at the end of the course will be, you know, one-stop shop for both in order to have this integrated experience for our customers. But when it comes to designing and building things, there is a huge respect to compliance on the medical side, as well as on the commercial side. That's why actually we are trying to also include that compliance aspect to, to the initiative. Well, one thing I want to spend a little bit of time talking about is you just wrote an article on healthcare recommender systems published on Medium, also up on your LinkedIn page. If everyone's listening to this should follow Youssef on LinkedIn, you can find the article there, give it a little plug. But maybe what motivated you to write the piece? You know, you're, you're five months into your experience at Genentech, but already you've written an article about healthcare recommender systems and, and the nuances, the terminology, a lot of the facets of it. What motivated you to put the piece up? You know, to your point, I'm I'm new in the in the industry, and and because I've been exposed to recommender systems in retail, I wanted to know what does a recommender system you know look like in in healthcare. And the article I I posted in Medium blog, it's nothing but summary of that research. It's the first series of articles I will be publishing around the techniques themselves. It's going to be a little bit more technical for the upcoming ones, but. It's a way for me to materialize the knowledge I'm building in, the, um, in this new industry. Well, one thing you mentioned in there is something that we talk a lot, because it's obviously the name in the podcast, contextual intelligence, and you talk about context. Yes. <laughs> and, con- and you break it down into two key elements of contextual factors and multifactorial goal setting. Could you maybe describe for a minute what are those elements and why are they so essential to a successful recommender system? The context is one of the three aspects of recommender systems. There is the item, the users, and the context. The context can be broken down into two things. There are like the contextual factors and and the multifactorial goal setting. So what does that mean? Contextual factors can be seen from a lens of two angles. The first one is the dynamic attributes and dynamic factors that are related to users and their activities. Example of dynamic attributes would be the best time to take, uh, you know, fat-soluble vitamins is with dinner, for example, right? If you take an example of dynamic factors, that would be more related to user or patients. And it's also dynamic and it has to do with the emotional state for a specific activity. So that's the the first dimension or the first aspect of, of the context when it comes to recommender systems. On the other hand, multifactorial goal setting is taking into consideration domain-specific criteria before recommending an item, as opposed to e-com, where most preferred items are most likely to be recommended. It doesn't work this way. In healthcare, we have to completely shift gears because blood pressure lowering medicines are good for patients suffering from hypertension. These drugs can be super dangerous for diabetes patients, for example. That's why having this multi-goal setting for what's good for the user, it's very important. So this is the difference between, for example, retail and, and, and healthcare. Not that there is no context in retail, there is, but it's completely different and it's straightforward versus what we see in healthcare because it can be having some serious consequences when it's not done properly. And machine learning, again, can help doing that with, you know, some sophisticated systems and uh, algorithms. Well, Youssef, you've been very generous with your time. 
We've really enjoyed the conversation. I am going to try to steal a couple more minutes from you here for a section that we do at the end of every podcast episode, which is in this case called Yousef in Context. Of course. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about your interests, your background. And I'm going to start with a question that we always start with, which is who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us? Steve Jobs, definitely. I'm, I'm a huge fan. He inspired me like even beyond the career. Design for me is very important. For example, when you develop a UI, it has to be easy to use for people. It doesn't have to be, you know, like a super complex thing. Design and the end goal of simplifying and, and providing this integrated experience for internal and external users, I think it's it's just beautiful. And again, I remember I never needed to have an iPhone, but I every year I, I buy <laughs> because it's just it's just beautiful and, and it has a purpose behind so yeah so Steve Jobs definitely very inspiring I don't think there can be an argument with that answer okay so if money was not a factor what career would you most like to pursue other than the one you're doing right now so of course we know that this is your life's passion you would do it for free yes but other than what you're doing today <laughs> what career would you most like to pursue I would definitely join one of the United Nations agencies you know, I was born in um, in a developing country, Morocco, North Africa. I think um, I always been very sensitive to nutrition, water, all the you know essentials of life. And my parents came from mountains south of Morocco, where they had to work and and walk hours to get you know water. And being part of organizations like that, that can facilitate some of the access to these kind of things. I think the UN is a good spot for that. I don't know, maybe one day, maybe my yeah. experience with Genentech will lead me to work with WHO <laughs> when, I, when I'm 50 or something. But don't tell my, my manager. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, very, it's a very timely and appropriate answer. I would hope that we have the perspective you just shared would be yes. wonderful if that was shared globally with what's absolutely, going on right absolutely. now. Thank so, you so much. Thanks. At the other end of the spectrum, at the bottom of that list, what profession would you most not want to pursue, no matter what it paid? Being a dentist. I'm, I'm traumatized. I, I just hate the idea of opening someone's mouth and, and, and pull. I don't want to do that. I don't, wanna, I, don't want, I don't want anyone to do that to me. That's good to know. So at one end of the spectrum, UN peacekeeper. At the other end of the spectrum, creator of pain as a dentist. I understand. Yeah, that makes exactly. Sense. Okay. <laughs> What is the best book, film, or show you've enjoyed recently and why? Yeah, it's, a, it's an old book, actually, 2014. It's called Super Intelligence. I really highly recommend it if someone wants to understand like all the challenges and dangers like of a superhumans and AI. And it's a good, it's a good literature for the topic. I, I love what one of the critics uh, said. If superhumans or superhuman AI is, is getting bigger, you know, it's the biggest event in our modern times, we have to make sure that it doesn't become the last event. <laughs> and again, to your, I liked your question about humanizing AI, and I think the trust is key. It's, it's something super powerful. Machine learning is super powerful. But like humanizing that and, and creating this relationship, you know, between humans and machines, that's the, the key thing. How can we coexist? with the different machines that are surrounding us. That would be wonderful. Okay, you're at a family gathering and your eight-year-old niece asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell her? 
Oh, I do have an eight-year-old niece. Did you know did that? You? Did they tell no, you that? I did yeah. Not. See, no, she's that's the she's question in, we ask she, everybody. You have an oh my god, niece, like yeah. She, yeah, she's Moroccan Belgian. She lives with my family in Belgium. I would just tell her I, I program computers, and I hope she will understand what does that mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if she wants you to program her computer, you you say sure. Point me to it. Yeah, Let's sure. It. Like, and then she will ask me details and say, yeah, you can program computers to do some tasks. For example, you can program a computer to get uh, you deliver pizza or coffee or something, or, or to get your jacket or skirt delivered to you or something like that. Or she will understand programming computers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question, and I'm very interested in the answer to this one. So your ultimate dinner party for four. Who is in attendance and what are you serving? Oh my God. My wife, my daughter, two years old. Mm -hmm. And of course me and our dog, Safran. He's behaving, so I have no problem bringing him for to dinner. Pasta bolognese, super, super al dente, Italian style with Parmesan. I love it. Very simple, very simple, efficient. And we love pasta. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though, Yusef. You, at the same time, you dream big and you have this huge scope and, and way of thinking about things, but your answer to that question is, is perfect. Like there are also some great value and simple things in life too. Simple, yeah. absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yusef, thank you for your time. That was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you coming on with us. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman. You can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all of the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Mm-hmm.